Jesus, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship um, through the study of your word. And we pray right now, Lord Jesus, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be drawn closer to you um, through your teachings and that you would continue to impress upon our hearts your deep love for us and for this world. We ask this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 today. And the beatitude for this afternoon is, Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Just sounds easy, right? Like, as long as you're pure in heart, you get to see God. Well, let's unpack what the Bible understands the word heart to be as we kind of go through this um, abbreviated uh, beatitude study this afternoon. In the Bible, both um, in Greek and particularly in Hebrew, the word heart is very clear. It doesn't have any specific nuance. In Greek, it's cardia, which is where you get cardiovascular, like all of those kinds of systems. And in Hebrew, the word is lev. If you say the Shema, the number one commandment in Hebrew, um, then you are saying lev. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And there's where the word lev comes in. But in Hebrew thought, in the biblical world, and when Jesus is there and he's teaching, all of this imagery would be coming up. When he says the word heart, he's talking about the seat of emotion and will and action and inner life and memory and intellect, which is weird for us. Because when we talk about heart, um, if we're not talking about the organ, which that would also be implied because they weren't dumb. They knew what the heart was. It sat sort of at the center of the body. And you could feel a heart, right? I can feel your heartbeat. Um, you can feel your own heartbeat if you start to get scared or if you're running really hard. You can sort of feel your heart beating. So they understood that the emotional sort of core of who you are, the center of who you are was your heart. But when we say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, we would be um, confused if we thought as Westerners that that also meant mind. But in the Hebrew world, the heart was the seat of intellect as well. And I'll just grab a couple verses to tell you about that. Deuteronomy chapter 6 for the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself is the one we say when Jesus adds that in from Leviticus 19. But then it says, keep these words that I am commanding to you today in your heart. And so as then Deuteronomy 6 continues, it talks about recite these words when you go along the road with your children. Teach them to your kids. Bind them on your door frames. Bind them in your heart. So when God says, love the Lord your God with everything, he does not here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 have to say, mind. Because that's implied in the word heart. When you get to your Gospels, which are written with also an understanding that there's a Greek-speaking audience reading them, and the Gospels are written in Greek, you'll notice that when they ask Jesus what the number one commandment is, like in Mark 12, he'll say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your might. And so the gospel writers or Jesus added the word mind in there, even though that's not initially and originally from Deuteronomy 6, because they knew that people like us, Westerners, Greek thought linear people, wouldn't think mind unless it was mentioned. But an ancient Hebrew understood that the heart was the seat of intellect, the seat of thought, that if you said heart, it contained everything. Jesus seems to be hinting at this in different passages. For example, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, it says, Jesus, perceiving or knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? 
He doesn't say, why do you think evil things in your brain? That would be weird for him to say. But if I said to you, why are you thinking that in your heart? You're kind of like, well, you know, I've done my anatomy class and the brain is where the thought process comes from and the heart is just an organ that goes like this that beats and makes blood move throughout my body, right? But that's not how it worked in the ancient world and that's not how it worked in the ancient Hebrew thought. Luke chapter 6, Jesus says it this way. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble brush. The good person, out of the good treasure of the heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out, if it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Jesus talked often about how it wasn't the things that were outside of your body that made you unclean. It's not your hands or what you touch that makes you unclean. It is that your heart must be pure. And if your heart is not pure, then unclean things come out of your mouth. That's what Jesus spoke of. He said that the abundance of your heart, that the mouth overflowed the abundance of your heart. He knew and used that imagery that what you were thinking in your heart was what sort of guided and influenced your world. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, the word heart encompasses a lot more than just those who have lovey feelings. Like if you ask my daughter, what does a heart mean? She'll say, it means I love you, right? She, that's, she hearts mean I love you. That's right, hearts mean that I love you. But when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's not talking only about how you feel or um, those gushy feelings inside or the organ that's pumping blood around in your body. He's talking about the very center of everything that you have, your very soul, your very mind, everything in you. Blessed are those who are pure in all of that, for they will see God. So now let's unpack that word pure. Well, the word pure there is katharos, like, like catharsis in the Greek. And it specifically is constantly used for clean or clear or cleansed or innocent or responsible or pure. So when it says take two of every clean animal, it's that word in the Greek in the Septuagint, your Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible verse that it seems that Jesus is referencing here, the word is bar, which has a connotation of pure or empty and bright and clear. So all of that is encompassed in this word pure. It's what's innocent. It's what's driven out, like pure as driven snow, right? It's, it's the perfection that you look at it and there's no impurities in the water. You look it through and you can see that everything is pure. And at this point, all of us should be saying, there's no way I can ever attain to this beatitude. I could have maybe practiced the merciful one. I can try to be kinder to people. Maybe I'm going to work a little bit about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But how is it ever going to be possible for me to be pure, innocent, completely clean of everything that I am? So I guess I just don't get to see God, right? Because that's blessed are the pure in heart for they'll get to see God. So let's find the scripture verse that Jesus is quoting. Uh, my Old Testament prof in divinity school said Jesus never says anything original. He's always quoting something. And he's joking, of course, but he means that Jesus is always finding something to reference. And here, too, in this beatitude, just like in the others, Jesus is referencing a psalm, at least one in particular. Psalm 24, we'll just look at the first part of verses 1 through 6. This is a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm that would be sung as pilgrims are going up to the house of God 
and you can hear that in the psalm itself. So here, read with me. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and those who live in it, for he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. So stop right there for just a moment. The psalmist starts with God is in charge of everything. He is the creator God. He's established everything and harkens immediately back to Genesis chapter one. That God is establishing and founding the seas. He's establishing it upon the rivers. That the torrential waters of chaos that were in this world, that God is the one that's in charge of those. That he can sort of say, as Job says um, in the book of Job, this far and no farther shall you go, ocean. God is in charge of all of this. So the psalmist starts with a bit of worship for God as creator God. And then the next verse comes, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? So the psalmist asks this question. God is the creator. God, he's made everything. Who among us can possibly even walk up to Mount Zion? Can walk up to Jerusalem? Who among us can stand in the house of God in that space? And the psalmist asks the question, and here the pilgrims respond, those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false, And do not swear deceitfully. So we get an explanation immediately. If you have clean hands, if you have a pure heart, if you don't give false witness, if you don't have any deceit in you, then you can go up to the house of God. And then this is what we get. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from their God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek and who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah take a breath, breathe, and think about that. So it's really simple, everybody. We're good. Clean hands, pure heart, see God. Great. The creator of the universe, the one who sets all of this into place. And it's very clear as you read through this, that this is exactly the psalm that Jesus is leaning into when he says, blessed or happy are those who are pure of heart, for they shall see God. These are the ones that would ascend up to the house of God. They're the ones that would pilgrim, that would seek God's face, that would try to go and find that encounter with the Holy One, the Holy One of all creation. The next verse is right after that. Say, lift up your gates, you King of glory. Like they talk about these ancient gates of days. And and the picture that the psalmist is gathering in that spot is that God is so amazing and so big that he can't even enter the gate that is there and that is present, that the gates themselves have to lift up in order to let God in, because he is the creator God of everything. He can't be contained in that house. Well, outside of the holy temple of God in Jerusalem, there were ritual pools for cleansing, and there were actual physical places to wash your hands, to cleanse your heart, to prepare for worship in coming to God. And outside these southern steps of the temple mount of Jesus's day, they found over a hundred mikvah, or mikvaot, ritual cleansing pools, they would prepare the hearts of the pilgrims as they would quite literally ascend the steps up into the Temple Mount. So Jesus leans into this and he says, Ah, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. And he grabs this beautiful psalm. He's immediately placing everyone back into that holy space where as a pilgrim, you say, I want to go and have an experience with God. I should prepare myself before I go. I will ensure that I've done something that reminds me of of cleansing, of purity in my life. I grew up in a community that did this. 
every single Sunday when we would meet in my liturgical Lutheran church community, we would have our very basic opening, and then we would have a confession of sin. You think, wow, it's kind of a downer, right? It's in our, like, more, like, we have coffee and cupcakes to, you know, start church. Um, To start church with immediately confessing sin, but it was with the understanding that if you wanted to go and have an encounter with God Almighty, that you needed to prepare your heart for that moment. So you started simply with this profession and confession of sin. And I loved it as a kid, because as a kid, you're constantly getting in trouble, at least I was. And I knew every week that I needed forgiveness. I was deeply aware of that. I think we've lost some of that. We don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about hell. We don't like to talk about separation from God. We don't like to talk about all of these things that are deeply broken in our world. And yet after weeks like the week that we've had in our nation, isn't it clear that sin is still a real significant problem in our world and that we need healing and we need purity and we need cleansing? So let's just stop for a moment and ask the question, okay, so if I do all of this, I get to see God? Well, who has seen God? We have at least one story that's very clear where Moses asked God if he can see a bit of his glory. And God's like, listen, if you see me, you're going to die. You don't get to see God. You are sinful. You aren't pure. You can't come before me. So what I'll do is I'll push you into the cleft of the rock and I'll just let you catch a glimpse of me as I've gone by. And as Moses has that moment, this is what he experiences. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So the tiniest little bit of an experience that we have in our Bible of somebody who's actually tried to apprehend just the the smallest, slight glance of God is Moses, even he couldn't do it, Moses being a pretty good dude, and yet he gets a glimpse of what God is like, loving, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, which is pretty amazing that if the one true God who's completely pure, where there has never been sin, is allowing us a tiny glimpse, and we, sinful in our being, get that glimpse that the first thing we hear is he's not angry. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And that's this little taste, this little glimpse that we get of the God that we experience. Now, there's other stories in the Bible where, I don't know if you recall, um, Samson's parents in the book of Judges. In Judges 13, the angel shows up to uh, Samson's mom. Samson's not born yet and says, hey, you're going to have a kid. She's like, okay, thanks. And she gets the information from the angel. And then she goes to her husband, says, the angel just told me this. And he's like, no, I don't believe you. So then the angel has to come back again. And there's like this whole other experience. He says the exact same thing. He's like, I just told your wife this. And so he says it again. And then Manoah still doesn't quite believe him. And so then they have this offering and the the offering goes up into the sky and the angel goes up. And then Manoah goes, says this, we are going to die. We've seen God, which is the whole thing that he's asking for the whole time, by the way. He's like, I want to see it. I want to see it. Oh my goodness. I'm going to die. I've seen it. And his wife, still the calm, sensible one says, if we were going to die, he wouldn't have come. And we're all still here. It's okay. But we have oftentimes those experiences, those other little bits in the Bible, right? Like I've seen God, I will die. The reason why people are having these responses is because they know that God is holy and that they are not. 
that God is perfect and holy and that I am not and I cannot stand before his presence. That's why throughout the Bible, whenever anyone's starting to have just a tiny experience with the divine, people are immediately falling flat on their face. Immediately in awe. Immediately aware that they are not God and that God is holy and pure. But somehow in this beatitude, happy are those that are pure in heart for they will see God. Jesus is giving us a glimpse into a way in which we too can approach God. And we're trying to still figure this out. So let's listen to the psalmist David. David has done terrible things. He's a man after God's own heart in all of the full meaning of that word. And yet he has sinned. He's sinned with Bathsheba. He takes a census at one point. He makes some mistakes. So he writes this Psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. And you'll have to go and read the whole thing. And in this, he talks about being cleansed with hyssop, which by the way, is like kind of thorny and not a great, I can't imagine wanting to be cleansed with hyssop. That does not sound like a good idea. And he says this, create in me a clean heart, O God, And put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain in me a willing spirit. And the word that David uses there for the word create, it's not the word that he could use for like fashion or form or make this thing. He uses the word, the same word that's in Genesis chapter one, the Lord God created the heavens and the earth where God takes nothing and makes something. David says, do that to me. Take the very emptiness of everything that I am. I have nothing to offer you, God, and create something new. Do it again, God. You do the creating. And so this beautiful psalm, which might be another of the psalms that Jesus is echoing here, create in me a clean heart, O God. This psalm of repentance, awareness full of his sin, David turns to God and says, I need something brand new. You're the only one that can create it. You're the only one that can make the pure, new, clean thing. And God does the creating. If we listen to the Beatitudes as a list of things that we should be, these are attitudes you should be, then I could saddle us all up with a whole bunch of hard, hard work to say, all right, go try really hard to get that pure heart. Here are your five steps to confessing your sin every day. Here are the ways to not smack your brother or your sister in the car ride home. Here's the way to not utter the curse word under your breath at your boss this week or your spouse, or your friend. Here is the way, right? And we could go through all of our steps of all of the things that we are trying and so hard, deeply so hard to do, to get right. As a kid, I recall wanting to get this so right. You see, again, confession and awareness of sin was something that was deep in my life. And it it didn't feel like a burden to me. It felt like, yeah, no, that's true. I, I stink. I messed up like two days ago, two minutes ago. So I really wanted to love God, and I had gotten really fiery, and I'd gone to a church retreat at Mount Hermon Redwood Camp, and I came home, and I was totally into it and reading my Bible all the time. My mom kept telling me, church is something we do on Sundays, Danielle. It's not something we have to do all week long. And I was like, oh, we're going to do this all week long. And so I was constantly excited about it, and yet every day I would go to fifth grade, and I would start with my devotion in the morning. I'm going to do a really good job for you today, Jesus. I'm going to make sure to love you. I'm not going to make any mistakes. 
headaches. I'm not going to do this to this friend. I'm going to make sure to bring in this friend that's lonely. All of these things. And within like the first two hours of school, I knew I had messed it up. So then I thought, I just need like a, a more present reminder. If I could have like a sign in front of my head all day that was like, love God. Maybe then I could remember to stop sinning. So I fashioned one because I, I also fashioned myself an entrepreneur and an inventor. So I took a headband and I wrapped it around my head, fifth grade, like I was actually going to wear this to school. And I got one of those like uh, uh, springs, like the beanie things, like those little headbands with the antenna. So I grabbed two of those and hung it down. And my idea was that I would just make this sign. And so I did it. And I, I wrote this sign and hung it right in front of my face. It was like, love God. And I'll, I was like, God, I'll do this for you, Jesus, man. I will wear this hat to school if this will help me remember. And I had a cross necklace. It didn't help me. I couldn't see it. So, you know, like um, other people could see it. I wasn't seeing it. I was like, I have to create something so big. And so I kind of walked around my room. It, I never, I, I fancied myself an inventor. I was clearly not. It was like more, you know, I'm the dreamer more, not the actual engineer person. So the sign kept hitting me in the face. It was not, it was heavier than the spring could manage. It was just, it was a mess. It wasn't really going to work. And then I thought to myself, Danielle, let's be honest. Even if this were a neon sign that buzzed and blinked directly in your face, you would still find a way to look around that and sin. It would become normal to you to still just see this thing and to look around it and still choose your own way. It would become the norm. And that's when I just leaned right back into thanking God that every single Sunday I got to start with, God, I confess that I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. And I loved that I could go to God every single day and say, I messed up, but I know that you forgive me. Now, let's just go back for a moment and find one other possible way that we could see God. This is one of my favorite. Just go home and read the entire book of 1 John. It's awesome. There's a confession of sin in, in 1 John that we're going to echo in a little bit. But in 1 John chapter 4, we get a glimpse of how we might be able to see God. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this love, not that we... This in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. And John seems to be saying that though we cannot see God, we can begin to perceive God, the existence of God in our life through the practice of loving one another. And this is tough because that command back to the whole heart, being pure in heart, loving God with everything we have, loving our neighbor as ourselves, And then Jesus, for some reason, has just up this game to loving our enemies. So that means that whichever presidential candidate you think should not be on the ballot in November, we are called to love that him, no, her, that person. We have to love those people. I have to find a way to love 
even the people that I feel could be bent on the destruction of my nation, Jesus tells me that if in practicing love for them, I might be able to see a little bit of God. That holding hate in my heart and judgment and anger, it prevents me from perceiving God in that person. Now, we'll go back to David. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be clear confession of sin and some cleansing with hyssop for some of our presidential, all of our presidential candidates, right? We're all human. So it's not that we're saying we love people and you just have to feel lovey and cozy about them regardless of how they are behaving or treating or speaking to anyone. We are called to understand God's word and God's word is clear that as Christians, we are to love. And if someone is proclaiming Christ and is not proclaiming that, then they have missed the gospel because we are called to love. Period. There's no footnote that says, unless they are a radical Muslim. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so I have a quick confession. Besides the fact that I have trouble loving everyone, which is a clear knowledge. I don't have to confess. I think everybody knows. Um, I wanted to say one other bit that helps us to achieve some of this purity of heart when we come to confession. Does anyone know what this is? Rubik's Cube. Okay, so I'll be dating myself, but they came out when I was a kid. And it had become known, there was even a game show, like if you're Rubik's Cube, you could compete and try to, so it's like people who were geniuses could do the Rubik's Cube. And my parents, particularly my mother, who signed me up for the PSAT when I was 10, um, had a very high value for intellect. So she got a Rubik's Cube and sort of wanted to just like plop it down in front of her two genius children to see which which one could figure that out. Well, try as I might, I could not figure out the Rubik's Cube, but I am ingenious. And so I started peeling the stickers off. And I, through peeling the stickers off, could make the Rubik's Cube back into the way that it was. So I went to the other room to concentrate and peeled off the stickers and put them back and then came back and said to my mom, look, I did it. I so deeply wanted her approval, and I wanted her to think I was a genius. And I kind of was, right? It's kind of smart. Um, I didn't know how to break it apart and put it back together, but I, you know, I could peel those stickers off. Now, this worked, and she told my teachers at school that I was a genius. Um, and it worked, and she would make me do it for others until the stickers started falling off. Because you can only pull off a sticker so many times before that adhesive stops to go. And she made me confess. And I had to go to school and confess to the teacher, who I knew not to tell I was a genius with the Rubik's Cube, but my mother had told. And I had to confess to all of the people in my life that I had really messed this up. And there was a lot of shame, and there was a lot of embarrassment, and I never did it again. But there was also something wonderful about being set free. Because I wasn't having to run off and hide behind a couch anymore to peel off stickers and beg to God that they'd stick back on that thing to show off for the latest guest that came over for dinner. I no longer was beholden to the show of the Rubik's Cube. When we confess, we are also given that purity of heart. We get to come before God and say, I can't carry this anymore. This burden is too great, God. I've been peeling the stickers off my Rubik's Cube and trying to pretend that I can do something or be something that I am not, and I can't do it anymore. 
I've been hiding my hatred and my anger for this person, and I can't do it anymore. And now, God, all of those things I'm bringing to you, God, create in me a new heart. So as a community right now, I want to give you this opportunity. I'm going to grab the liturgy that reaches back into my past, and I'm going to start with words of the pastor. And then you all with me can read back the words of the congregation. And we will just have a moment to confess and then to revel in the beauty that the purity of heart comes through confession because Jesus is the one that has in his full purity and sinless life paid the price for us and reconciled us unto God. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just to invite you to take a moment and just confess silently. And the congregation says, Most holy and merciful Father, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Almighty God in his mercy has given his son to die for us and for his sake forgives us all our sins. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy are the pure in heart, for we will see God. Amen.